Hallelujah. Father, we confess with the words of this song that the ground of our soul's assurance is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is well with our soul because the sins that we committed against the holy and righteous God were atoned for by Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. It is well with our soul and we will live eternally inasmuch as we trust in Him as the anchor for our souls who through His own torn flesh, His own spilled blood, gained us audience, gained us access to fellowship and reconciliation with the Father. We thank you, Lord, that we have at the communion table today evidence, Lord, in these symbolic uh, elements right here of the very price that was paid to purchase our soul's salvation. We pray this morning as we open your scripture that the understanding and the significance of these things would be etched even deeper into our soul. We pray that you would reinforce your church to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel in the face of adversity and that the message of hope in Christ alone would be more readily fitted for our lips and more encouraging to the lost on account of a clearer testimony as a result of your means of grace this day. As we open your scriptures, we pray that the Holy Spirit would nourish us, that he would dispel doubts, that he would convict of sin, that we, he would comfort the weak, that he would strengthen us in our walk, that he would convict the lost of sin and cause them to repent and turn to Christ. We pray, Lord, in all of this, that Jesus Christ would be glorified through the ongoing purification, the sanctification of his body. May you use the proclamation, the washing of the water of your word today to erase spots and blemishes, even among us, your bride. And may you bless the table so that it reinforces to our soul in the experience of communion today, the reality of Christ broken and bleeding for us, his children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What an amazing privilege it is and what a glorious gift to be able to open the scriptures together and to consider them and in so doing to hold our attention accountable to the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn with me if you would to Psalm 108 today and let us consider these scriptures today. In a moment we'll stand for the reading of the same 108 verses 1 through 13. Hopefully we'll get through the entire passage this day. That's the goal anyways. The title of this morning's message is Post-Lament. It means after lament, post-lament. The reason I've chosen this title is this psalm, as we'll see in the introduction later, is drawn from two other psalms, portions from two other psalms. However, Psalm 108, the tone gives way to victory, whereas the other psalms were definitely mournful. The aim of this morning's message is to set before us a perspective. It is to provide an outlook or a perspective for our times and for all of time from the messianic vantage point. Let me say that again. The aim of this morning's message is to provide a perspective or an outlook for our times and for all of time by lifting our souls to view history from the messianic vantage point. When we see our time in light of the victory of Jesus Christ in history, it has a profound effect on our worldview. And I think Psalm 108 offers a corrective, offers lenses, if you will, a perspective that can reinforce our souls, especially in times like these. Hence, in this message, we will seek to understand these things and apply them as well. With your Bible open to Psalm 108, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word this day? Psalm 108 comes to us under this title, A Song 
a psalm of David. Hear now the word of the Lord. Verse 1. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 6. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Verse 10. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you not go out, O God? Or you do not go out, O God, with our armies? O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. Verse 13. With God we shall do valiantly, for it is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today is our communion service, first Sunday of the month. We celebrate communion. It's our tradition here. And I've been going through a First Peter series, but I figured Psalm 108 had already had an outline, and it seemed to fit the exigencies of the moment, that is the times that we're in. So I figured I would pick up Psalm 108 in that we normally do psalms on the second Sunday of the month, and because of my crazy schedule, we didn't get to Psalm 108 uh, this month until now. Hence, Psalm 108, under this title, Post-Lament. Psalm 108 is a selective composite. So composite means made up of parts. Psalm 108 is made up of two parts. One part drawn from Psalm 60, and another part drawn, drawn from Psalm 57. And David wrote all three, Psalm 57, Psalm 60, and Psalm 108. David is drawing nearly word for word from portions of two other songs. Psalm 108, 1 through 5, corresponds to the Davidic, that means David by author, miktam, which is the kind of psalm as it appears in the title, 57, 7 through 11. So again, Psalm 108, 1 through 5, corresponds with Psalm 57, 7 through 11, nearly word for word. Furthermore, Psalm 108, 6 through 13, is cited from, cited from another miktam for instruction, another kind of song, by David. And this one is Psalm 65 through 12. So again, Psalm 108, 6 through 13 corresponds with Psalm 65 through 12. This is interesting. Psalm 57 is an individual lament. It's the person, the individual, crying out to the Lord, bringing his sorrowful a plea and appeal to God. Psalm 60 has been categorized as a community lament. It's the people corporately offering their cry and their complaint, if you will, and their anguish to the Lord in song. Yet, interestingly enough, Psalm 108 can hardly be categorized, our psalm today, can hardly be categorized as a mournful song. In fact, it has a decidedly triumphant tone with one brief interjection, acknowledging prior discipline of the Lord upon the land in verse 11. In this way, may I suggest that the very compilation process, that is David choosing this portion from Psalm 57, this portion from Psalm 60, that very compilation process from this group of song echoes the course of victory gained by the Messiah in history. Jesus' calling was one of trial unto triumph. 
Trials give way to triumph. Psalms of lament in the course of messianic sovereign history, psalms of lament give way to songs of, songs of conquering glory as we see the progress of God's covenant history unfolding. Even the choice and the way that these songs were compiled seems to echo this perspective. Jesus' calling is one of triumph or suffering uh, un, and sorrow, or uh, I'm sorry, suffering and sorrow unto triumph. And uh, you could also say that his was uh, one of great pain and anguish unto glory. And from our particular vantage point, you know, just our experience given when we're born and the age that we are born into, we might grow discouraged because we have too small of a perspective. We do not see the messianic point of view or vantage point. From our vantage point at any given time in history, the promises of God may be to us, may appear to us obscured by various trials and providential hardship. I'm sure you've experienced this and we've seen this in the life of Abraham, right? Genesis 15, Abraham's crying out out of fear, Lord, what will you give me? I still don't have a child. I'm 90 plus years old, approaching 100. And God says, I will be your shield and your buckler. You shall have a child by Sarai, your, also your aged wife. And so at that time, the trial of age obscured in Abraham's mind the promises of God to some degree. However, how much, uh, when Isaac was finally born, how much trouble, how much do you think Abraham's age troubled him? When he held that little baby in his arms and his almost 100th year, and he looked down on the smiling face of this child called laughter, Isaac, in his arms. Do you think he thought much about his age? No. And that was a time for a joyful song, a psalm of praise. You see, laments in the course of God's promises in history give way to triumphant praise. This course of sovereign history is pictured in communion, even at the Lord's table, as well as in Revelation, our worship text this morning, 21, 3 through 4, it proclaims as much in ultimate terms, right? The tears of this life and the sorrows and the sin and the frailty that plagues us in our fallenness will give way to perfect, ultimate, consummate joy and fellowship. Every tear wiped away, every pain a distant memory, every hardship, something that we can barely recall, as I imagine, as we are surrounded by the eternal bliss of God's redemptive promises fully realized in the experience of the believer. So even the choice of David's songs Lament giving way to songs of triumph echoes the shape of sovereign history. Psalm 57 was written while David took refuge in a cave, fleeing the predations. That means the uh, attacks, the pursuit of Saul. So David was being chased. Although he was the anointed king, he was promised the throne of Israel. Yet the wicked, insane king Saul, who had been discredited and in his sin and lust for power sought to destroy David, chased him all around the countryside for years. And David wrote a song, songs under those conditions, even hiding in a cave. And that's the context of Psalm 57. Furthermore, Psalm 60 was written in the context of an extensive battle campaign because of Saul's wickedness and poor management of the country. As an evil magistrate, the opposing armies that surrounded Israel began to come more and more and more, occupying their territory. So much of David's life was, in protract, was spent and his reign was spent in protracted war. Although successful in his campaigns, nevertheless, it was a difficult calling indeed, and hence Psalm 60 was written in the context of an extensive battle campaign seeking to drive back Israel's enemies. Yet these two psalms 
forged in conflict, become an inspirational source of material for a third song, Psalm 108, where the tone of confident victory rests securely on the authority and renown of David's king, ultimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The authority and the renown of Jesus Christ allows songs of lament in history to give way to triumphant praise. We see this perhaps as Psalm 108 reflects the manifold answers to prayers of David's later reign. I imagine Psalm 108, it makes sense, it was written after Psalm 57 and 60. I imagine Psalm 108 being written further along in David's reign. As the increase of the testimony of promises secured has become more and more a part of his experience. Hence, Psalm 108 draws from prior prayers the triumphal portions and it ends up being a post-lament song, if you will. It's praise after the difficulty. It's a celebration and thankfulness of triumph having gone through a difficult valley. There is nothing like the testimony of the Messiah's victories manifest in history to quiet and convict the anxious soul. And hence David sets his mind on these things. Let me say that again. There is nothing like the testimony of Jesus Christ the Messiah's victories to quiet and to convict the anxious soul. Perhaps you need this today. Psalm 108 was written for you. And to encourage steadfastness of heart. David says from verse 1, My heart is steadfast. How did he arrive at a steadfast heart, having been chased for years by an insane man, a madman, and being a fugitive in a cave and waging this long battle campaign, a king that was fitted for war and so forth? How did he maintain this kind of attitude? By fixing his soul upon the victories of the Messiah manifest in history to quiet and convict his own anxieties and to encourage steadfastness of heart. And we have the same source of inspiration to draw from when we look at the power, the glory, the glory, the works, and the accomplishments of our Savior in history to quiet and to convict our own anxious souls and to encourage us to steadfastness of heart. So let's look to David's source of reassuring confidence, shall we? And here's a heading for you. The messianic perspective is strengthened by heeding the following. Verses 1 through 5. Vows of the steadfast heart. The heart that is steadfast makes certain vows, certain commitments of the soul. And verses 1 through 5 cover those. The messianic perspective is strengthened by heeding the vows of the steadfast heart. Secondly, the messianic perspective, that is Jesus' victory in history, you could also say, that perspective is strengthened by heeding the means of glory saturation. In other words, how will God's glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk declares? Or in this psalm, how will God exalt himself uh, above the heavens and let his glory be over all the earth? How will that glory permeate all the earth? If we behold the means that God has deployed, that can greatly strengthen and encourage our perspective. And thirdly, meantime reassurance. The messianic perspective is strengthened by heeding meantime reassurance. The assurance of the promises of God and the record of his actions in history during this interim time that we find ourselves in, wherever we are in the course of sovereign history, even now between the church age and the second coming. Let me give you a contrast. Uh, so these are means I, propose, I submit to you from Scripture of how to quiet the anxious soul and to convict the heart and to bring steadfastness in, in, your, uh, in your mindset and so forth, in your, in your worldview. The world has ways of doing this as well. They have means that they deploy to try to cure anxiety. 
Stress is like a big, you know, glaring problem in the minds of most average secular Americans, whatever, in the culture of the West. But I would encourage you to note with discernment the places in which they turn. I was listening to an interview this week, and someone was commenting on how well-collected this individual was, who was a, you know, whatever he, uh, a cultural pundit, even in the face of great oppositions. They said, you know, what is your source of staying of, you know, cool and, and headed in the midst of all the chaos out there. And he says, well, uh, mindfulness and meditation. Um, he's like, take that real seriously. Some of these things are very good. Well, what is mindfulness and meditation? Well, it's basically setting the soul at ease by focusing on the self or some esoteric reality, some kind of mysticism. It really, at root, is an Eastern religious, ridiculous way. It's an idolatrous way of seeking an escape from stress. So these are means, you know, self-care, mindfulness, and uh, even a presidential candidate who was a little flash in the pan, Marianne Williamson, she was a disciple of Helen Schuchman's, I think, a quote-unquote, A Course in Miracles. I remember years ago, someone gave me this book and said, hey, I want you to take a look at this, see what you think. It was called A Course in Miracles. I remember writing a note and putting it in the leaf and giving the book back, and the note was this. Either, either this book must supplant the Word of God or the Word of God condemns this book no matter what is in its, in its contents. The book claimed to be mystical revelation. Directly, the, whole, the, the author claimed Jesus Christ was speaking to her from the years of like something like 1968 to 1972. And the purpose of this book is to quiet the soul. It's like a course for inner peace or something like that. A course in miracles, the foundation for inner peace. It's just another example that crops up in culture of ways that we seek to have a our perspective strengthened and to be released from anxiety. All that is poison. All that is ridiculous. Exercise good discernment. And may I encourage you if, you, if you feel confused, discombobulated, disillusioned, distressed, and despairing in this time, because yes, some of the culture pressure, cultural pressures are great, do not turn to some of these other means. Some people are even seeking you know, escape and spiritual uh, reality through psychotropics and so forth, you know, uh, experiencing some sort of trip on drugs. That's increasing in popularity as well. All these are worldly means to try to answer the question, where do we find peace when our world is so uncertain? I'll tell you where to find it. All these other ways are false. But the one true way that David models for us is to look to the Messiah, look to Christ alone, look to Jesus Christ and have your perspective and your soul quieted considering how strong, powerful, authoritative he is in history. The fact that he died and rose again and paid the debt for your sins and declared victory over the last enemy in so doing? Is that not a sufficient source to quiet the anxious soul? Absolutely, it is. So what are the vows of the steadfast heart? Let us seek to have our perspective strengthened by heeding the vows of the steadfast heart. Psalm 108.1 My heart is steadfast, O God. And David says, I will sing and make melody with all my being. Uh, kids, you want to play the stop game? Always a big hit. Okay, so here's the rules. When I say I will, when you hear the words I will, tell me to stop. Everybody ready? Everybody ready? Kids, you ready? All right, here we go. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. Very good. How many so far? I will give thanks to you. How many? O Lord, among the peoples, I will sing praises. What's the number? Among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. We'll stop there. Very good. So what the young people have identified is four vow statements 
I will statements. These are commitments. These, this is what the psalmist David has purposed in his soul to do. And the first one is in verse 1. He determines to sing and make melody with all his being. The second one is in verse 2. He determines to awaken the day, if you will. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn, he says in verse 2. So with all his being and waking the day, uh, so appraising the Lord, making melody with all his being and awakening the day are two vows that the, of the steadfast heart, two commitments for the soul that David makes. What does it mean to make melody and sing to the Lord with all your being? By the way, these first two are more introspective, looking on the inside, paying attention to your own soul. David says, I commit to sing and make melody with all my being. What does this mean? Does it mean that you will wear out your voice by never stopping to sing? Well, not exactly. But think of it this way, if you will. I took a couple uh, screenshots of some songs we sang this morning. Um, Here's two that stuck out to me today that we sang. Uh, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Listen to this line. As he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Think of that last line. I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Here's another song we sang this morning. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other. Now I want you to imagine, everyone's seen a movie where there's a bunch of scenes that kind of tell a story very quickly. And oftentimes there's a soundtrack over the top. So there's no dialogue during some of these kind of catch-up scenes or backstory scenes, but you'll see a clip. Let's say somebody is training in Rocky or something like that for a boxing match. And you'll see him like running up the stairs in Philadelphia or wherever it was filmed. You see him, you know, laying in to the uh, a punching bag or whatever. And then all the while, it's the eye of the tiger. It's the thrill of the fight, right? So there's a match between the theme, the eye of the tiger, the thrill of the fight. There is an anticipation and preparation for conflict. And then each scene matches that theme song, correct? So here's the challenge by way of application. These theme songs that we've sung this morning, our God is greater, higher than any other, or I am his and he is mine, I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. Do those theme songs fit, match all of your being? If your life was a movie, and if you could string together your thoughts and your actions, and you had those songs playing in the background, would it be a good match? I'm sure you and I can both think of many times this last week where there would be real conflict between the two. No, in this thought process, in this action, I was not acting like God is greater, higher than any other. I was betraying concern, anxiety, fear, stress, which betrays a lack of belief. Or I was not acting like God is the healer, he's an awesome, or that he is, I am his and he is mine. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. I was acting like I was subservient to these other Uh, whatever, authorities out there. So you see, the goal is, and our heart and our vow, the vow of the steadfast heart is to ask God to work on us from the inside out so that more of our thoughts and actions actually match the theme of the melody and the song that we sing in worship of our great Savior. This is an application of the vow to have a steadfast, uh, the vow of the steadfast heart to sing and make melody with all of our being. And secondly, on the internal side, David says, Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. Here's another kind of simple 
individual application. When you wake up in the morning, how many times do you hit snooze? I, I hit snooze more times than I care to mention. I'm a little embarrassed to say. A lot of times when I wake up in the morning, I act as like a passive victim of the day. But David says <clears throat> in his vow commitment that the goal of the victorious saint is to wake a harp and lyre and to waken the dawn. In other words, in the old Latin phrase, carpe diem, to seize the day, if you will. This is a biblical vision for seizing the day. Who do we act like when we go about our daily, day-to-day affairs? Do we live in the context of ambassadors of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead? You know, we've been going over in our last few Sundays what it means to be baptized into Christ. Now, after the children of Israel had been baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, you see how they reacted. Talk about seizing the day. They praised the Lord in Exodus 15. Um, you know, Miriam, get your timbrel out. We used to sing this song. Sing and shout and dance about the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song has now become my victory. So that is a song that evidences a confidence having looked upon the power of God to redeem you through the waters of the Red Sea and then it responds appropriately. These are people, Miriam, Aaron, and all of those who sang with them who who awakened the day. With harp and lyre and song, they greeted the dawn as victors, not as victims, if you will. But too often, we forget the fact that Christ has bought us with his blood and we are ambassadors of him and we act as if we are slaves to the circumstances around us. David vows to set the tone for each morning by reminding himself that he has assuring promises that guarantee his victory over death itself in faith of the coming Messiah, the son of David, to come. For those who have been baptized last week, what did we all do when they had dunked in the water and then they rose up and they gave their testimonies? We spontaneously praised the Lord. We clapped our hands and we offered to God praise. And for those who are baptized, it was a significant moment. Never forget, young people, those who were baptized last week. That is a perspective-shaping event. What baptism represents, remember it. It will strengthen you. And let your vows, let your purposes of your soul be shaped accordingly, okay? All my being, wake the day. Those are two internal or introspective vows. The second two are external, okay? Among the peoples in an aerial view, if you will. Verse 3, David says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So now he's moved from the internal side to the external. David vows, he commits his soul to proclaiming the glories of God, not just to himself, not just in his prayer closet, not in the privacy of his own home, not in the confines of his local church, but among the peoples. He says, I will sing praises to you among the nations. In other words, this is a call to take bold initiative, asserting the universal authority of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. A vow of the steadfast heart will do this, and we will take bold initiative asserting the universal authority of the kingdom of God. We move from the individual and the personal application to the corporate here. This is a great uh, commission perspective on the crown rights, if you will, on the kingdom, on the claim, on the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in history. Remember, we read last week from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, all authority... And heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus, therefore go. The context of the Great Commission is to go forth with a bold initiative, asserting the universal authority of the kingdom of God. So on Tuesday, we all go to the polls, right? If you're a voting age and you're so convicted and you enter into that voting booth. 
What I would encourage you to do is to apply Psalm 108 in your voting. Yes, take bold initiative asserting the universal authority of the kingdom of God. Will you use, will you assert the law of God with your vote on Tuesday? Will you buy the reconstruction and the reimagining of all the ethics of our day, which are packaged to us in so many twisted forms? Abortion is a human right, or sexuality is a personal choice, or marriage can be redefined according to the whim of the cultural moment. This morning in the young people's class, we study systematic theology with 10 and above, and we're going over the biblical teaching of the image of God right from Genesis 1 and then reasserted in Genesis 9. And the one context is the purpose, the sovereignty, and the value of us as God's creatures inasmuch as we are made in the image of God. The second context is the consequences that civil government ought to fear or ought to fearfully obey in violating the same. In other words, because we are precious in the sight of God, made in His image, and human dignity and worth and value is established by God Himself according to that which corresponds with His image, it is therefore sin to take the life of an innocent little one in the womb, what we euphemistically call reproductive rights or abortion in this day as a thin veneer over the over absolute murder and slaughter of the innocents. So what are we called to do with voting in the political realm as a voice to society? We are called to proclaim the rule of Christ among the peoples, among the nations, among our nation, to take bold initiative to vote for individuals, candidates, and platforms that assert the universal authority of the kingdom of God and vote according to His law and not the laws of men. This is an example application of the vow of the steadfast heart is not to remain private, personal, segmented, truncated, internal, pietistic, and simply about you and yourself. No. Very quickly, verses 1 and 2 give way to a public proclamation and assertion of the ethics of the kingdom of God and the announcement of the authority of the same and Jesus Christ and His crown rights to all who will listen, all nations, all peoples. David does not, as far as David's magisterial office was concerned, he was the king of but one nation. That was the nation of Israel. But with respect to the son of David, David himself recognizes his authority, his reign, and his rule is much greater. That is, David served as the king of Israel, a small geographically bound region, but Jesus Christ, the son of David, is king of kings and lord of lords. And he serves as sovereign and potentate, both as redeemer and judge of all peoples and all nations for all time. So let us go forth with a steadfast heart and let us commit to announce these things to the world. And this brings up our final point, the vow of steadfast heart, is to maintain an aerial view. What is an aerial view? It's a view from above. Think of like a Google Earth image or when you're flying in a plane. Hey, kids, raise your hand if you've ever flown in a plane. Any kids here? And then what, when you fly over a city, has anyone ever looked down and you see the roads and the cars? How tiny do they look, right? It looks like tiny little ribbons and little toy micro machines that we used to play with when I was a kid driving below you. What you are realize or what you, you are experiencing in that uh, flight, in that airplane flight, is an aerial view. It's a perspective from above. Notice how that analogy is similar to what David describes in verse 4. He says, For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. So the attributes of God are a or the attributes of God 
are a reality that is above, over, sovereign, that they're in control uh, over everything else. So David, in acknowledging the attributes of God, commits himself to take the perspective from above, the aerial view. He goes furthermore, he says, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds, right? And he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In considering the victory, the authority, and the glories of the Messiah to come and God's work in history, David, by faith, and recognizing God's power and his word, gets into the airplane, if you will, of God's word. And then he flies higher than the conflict of his day, hiding in a cave from a rabid king chasing him. Or this long, drawn-out battle campaign whereby he's growing weary in war. He takes this airplane ride above and sees the world himself, and all of life from the perspective of the aerial view. David insists the attributes of our sovereign God are to be our controlling perspective. The attributes of our sovereign God are to be our controlling perspective. Though the collateral damage of God's disciplinary judgments may tend to heighten our immediate sense of emergency, nevertheless, David insists the attributes of a sovereign God are to be our controlling perspective perspective. I wonder if you understand this concept. We live in a day, as I judge it, is fraught with much fallout and collateral damage, the judgments of God. He's allowed us to eat and part. Some chickens of our sin are coming home to roost, as it were, and we are seeing uh, evidences, consequences, and experiencing the pain of sinning against the holy God, even in the cultural norms that are crumbling around us. This can contribute in our souls, even those of us that love the Lord, to a sense of immediate emergency and a heightened fear, concern, and anxiety. And David acknowledges this. He says in verse 11, he cries out in a brief moment, uh, Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you not go out, O God, with our armies? O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly, for it is he who will tread down our foes. David was not immune to the potentially discouraging circumstances that plagued him on all sides. But what did he do? In, per, in uh, considering the attributes of God as the controlling perspective, he gets into the airplane, and as, as, as it were, and he takes the aerial view, the view from above. And this is how the soul is quieted. These are the vows of the steadfast heart. What is the aerial view of the year 2020? Now, I'm sure you guys have seen a hundred memes by now. If there was a button, you know, uh, where you could just start over at 2021 and everybody's like pushing it and whatever. And if we could just have this year over, if we could just wake up and it'd be 2021, please. I saw a few cam my favorite campaign signs so far. One was Giant Meteor 2020. So somebody had a sign in their yard, you know, political colors, red, white, and blue. And it said Giant Meteor 2020. The other one was, oh God, please make it stop. And that was another campaign sign. And what are these expressing? These are expressing an overwhelming sense of anxiety and stress that this year has brought upon us. But do those signs express the aerial view? No. They, in fact, represent a sinful, up-close, limited perspective. A fallen, frail human being feeling like he's the victim of all kind of negative forces. You know, the political unrest, the unrest in the streets, um, the uh, all of these, the, pan, the pandemic that now has threatened the economy as well as certain individuals who may be susceptible to the virus and so on and so forth. What is the aerial view? Well, the best example recently I heard was an application. Doug Wilson was making this point in one of his blogs of Hebrews 12, 27 through 29. Hebrews 12, 27 through 29, you can study that on your own time. But it's that passage of scripture 
which proclaims in God's sovereign ordination in history, there are times of shaking. But those shakings are for a purpose, that that which is unshakable may remain. There is a great redemptive purpose from the aerial view of when God shakes a nation, because idols fall under the shaking. Do you think Dagon can stand in the temple next to the Ark of the Covenant? No. God comes in with a shaking, a shaking. Dagon falls, and the Ark of the Covenant remains. It's God's presence versus idolatry. Who will win the battle? Well, we have so many areas, so many realms, so much idolatry in this nation, and this shaking that we're experiencing is evidence of God's pro, uh, pre, uh, presence, excuse me, evidence of God's presence, and a certain day of the Lord reckoning, at least provisionally, in our time. He is destroying our idols. You may try to set up Dagon again, you know, hope in the technocratic state to provide a vaccine for you by the end of the year, to give you a, uh, to inoculate everybody from the threat of a virus from now on. Do you think that will happen? I doubt it. I think most of our hopes placed in the, you know, major medicine and the politics of mere human, uh, humanism and so forth, most of these things are Dagons that we stand up and God is shaking these things so that what is unshaken will remain. Taking the aerial view, what remains unshaken? The truth of Psalm 108. The steadfast love of the Lord is great. It is above the heavens. When an earthquake happens on the earth, does it shake the steadfast love of God? No, it's in the heavens. The earth is shuddering underneath. We've also been studying in co-op the events of the great flood, which I believe included a cataclysmic event that the world has never seen before or since. Yet God was sovereign in the heavens and the great flood was by his design. And though it killed everybody save eight on the entire planet, do you think it was without purpose? No. Noah took the aerial view. When he believes God, God's promises, he got into the boat with his family and trusted that the breath of God's sovereign power would blow across the waters of his judgment and allow him entrance once again to repopulate the earth for his glory. If Noah can do it, so can we. If David can do it, so can we. We only have to look in the right place and make the vows of our steadfast heart to praise him with all our being, to strive for this, to awake the day as victors in Christ, to do this boldly among the peoples and to take the aerial view. Messianic perspective is strengthened more, uh, moreover by heeding number two, the means of glory saturation. The second section here gives examples of how God will spread his glory how he will permeate the whole earth, how he will saturate the whole earth with his glory. And recognizing the means that God uses in history to glorify himself across the faith, face of eras of history, uh, ethnicities, populations, nations, bodies, politics, and so forth, recognizing his means of doing so is a great point of perspective for us. It will strengthen us if we realize this. And hence, David says the following in verse 6 that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer me. That's kind of a key verse and really represents the goal. The goal of redemptive history is that the beloved ones, the elect of God would be delivered, that they would be granted salvation by the power and the intention of Almighty God and that their cries that he might deliver them would be answered in his day of reckoning with the salvation of his people and the judgment of the unbeliever. And how does God do this? Well, there are several references to peoples that he goes on to cite that help us understand. Verse 7, God has promised in his holiness with exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Now, this is review from a prior message. It's been about four years ago. 
But when I preached on Psalm 60, the passage from which these words are drawn, we recognized four principles or four means of God's glory saturation that are evident in these examples. They are promise, possession, purpose, and perdition, just to choose four Ps. Incidentally, in preaching, if you want to match up letters, P's like the easiest, there's so many good P words. Promise, possession, purpose, and perdition. Uh, Shechem and Sukkoth represent promise. God has promised in His holiness with exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. What are the significance of these two locations? Well, Shechem was the place, I believe in Genesis 12, 6-7, where Abraham built that first altar. It represented the promises of God. There was a long time before that promise of this place of God's purchase and securing for his people was realized. Nevertheless, Shechem had an altar that represented God's promises to that, uh, in that regard. Succoth was the first encampment when the children of Israel began their exodus from Egypt. Thus, it represented the steps of faith towards that promised land. So you see here, these places were milestones or altar locations that reminded the people they were tangible evidence of God's promises. This first encampment of Exodus, this altar of Abraham, and then it gave way in Succoth, I believe, to a covenant renewal ceremony in Joshua, I'm sorry, Shechem again, in Joshua 24. In other words, the very place where Abraham, Abram at the time, received the promise of God that he would gain uh, an inheritance and even a land for his name, that actual place became the place for Joshua and all the people entering into the promised land years and years and years later, whereby they renewed the covenant and realized the promises of God. So you see, the means of God's glory saturation, saturation through history comes with the promises and their fulfillment over time. So don't be discouraged if there's a meantime await in between. Furthermore, God demonstrates his glory through history by possession. God is, uh, or Gilead is mine, he says in verse 8. Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Particularly, Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Two regions on the east and the west of the Jordan. Who owns the property? God does. Now here's another political application for you, if you will, or should I say social application of God's law. Who owns the world? Kids, can you uh, answer that question? Who owns the world? That's correct. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord, Lord's, the fullness thereof, and all who dwell therein. Therefore, the basis of private property is established upon how God distributes his property. It is not up for us to take the place of God and redistribute property by some other mechanism i.e. the idea of compassion that everybody should have exactly the same resources based on a materialistic premise on Marxism that justice is the equal distribution of all material means. Now, some people think that a compassionate Christian can vote for a socialist candidate because it's a way to help the poor. I tell you, in closer read and with the application of good discernment, you cannot do so. And the reason I say as much is because socialism holds that the earth is the government's and all who dwell therein and should be redistributed according to whatever the will of the majority or whatever oligarchy is in place. Private property is based upon this claim that God owns his property and distributes it according to his law. And it just so happens he has given us 10 of these laws, among them thou shalt not steal, and therefore private property and the whole and sin of theft go together. See what I'm saying here? In other words, we get back to 
uh, this claim, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, and we find that because God owns all the earth, He has established His law according to these terms, and we need not fear because He owns everything. The state does not own everything. The state does not own our rights. They may seek to infringe upon them, yes, and we're fearful of this often, but ultimately those rights, as some of our framers indeed recognize, if not most, are granted to us by a sovereign over the state, by God. So ultimately those rights are only infringed or sought to be infringed by fools. Fools will be stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day and will be asked how they interacted with the Lord's property how they interacted with the Lord's people, with everything that he owned. And hence, magistrates ought to fear him. They ought to realize that Gilead is his, Manasseh is his, America is his, Russia is his, China is his, Africa and so forth, and all the nations therein, on each continent is his. And thus, it is necessary in order for anyone to rule rightly and justly to fear the Lord, because this world is his. And so God has laid claim he has established his ownership over all of history by creative right. Hence, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine. You could say everything from Gilead to Manasseh, that is the scope that is demonstrated in this analogy or picture. The totality of the whole world, in fact, is in view, even as the totality of the Holy Land is the analogy here. Furthermore, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. God has ordained certain institutions and certain eras of history for his purpose. Ephraim was his helmet. In other words, God will show his strength sometimes by bringing his judgments through rising up a nation. He will in other ways, more by reflection, show his strength by giving conviction according to the law of God for a nation that serves him according to his law. And in their best examples, Ephraim and Judah who did this, especially under the kingship of David as an example in history, though imperfect, nevertheless, they had, they were privileged to have a king that honored a higher king above him and served him with fear. Furthermore, Judah is my scepter. Scepter meaning lawgiver or the establishment of a standard of ethics, the rule, the reign, and the imposition of the king. What are the elements of kingdom? We've gone over this in the past. Sovereign, the ruler, subjects, those under his charge, realm, the extent, and law, that is his will enacted and coded in his word. God is the king of all the universe, therefore he is the sovereign. All people are his subjects, and they either stand in worthy of his judgment, or they stand redeemed in Jesus Christ. What is the reach of his reign? It is the entire universe. You cannot, where can you go from his presence? Nowhere. He is Lord of it all. And what is his law? We're reading of it right here. It is his holy word. And so God has purpose in history to reveal these things in the way he has uh, illustrated his law, even through the institution of the nation of Israel and the giving of the law all the way back to the early days of Moses. Finally, perdition. He says in verse 9, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. So my wife gave me a job to do. Yesterday, which I had been procrastinating on, which was to free up the drain in the kids' bathroom. And uh, not my favorite thing to do, maybe for obvious reasons. So I got down on my hands and knees. I had a bucket underneath there, and I unscrewed the pipes. And uh, what do you get when you combine dirty water, toothpaste, um, Israel smeared his hair with, uh, what was it, bacon grease the other day. So sometimes, given how crazy our kids are, you have some foreign objects that head down the drain too. So you add toothpaste, which tends to congeal over time, sticking to you know, human hair and all the dirt that you wash off. And, the, and eventually it collects and clogs that drain, right? That's like a wash basin. 
And so I opened the pipes and, you know, I jammed some paper towels down and it's just a, a grotesque, gelatinous mass of absolutely infested junk, right? Now, what do you do with that? Well, you, as quick as you can, at least me, you wrap it up in a plastic bag, you cinch it up tight, and you throw it away in the garbage. You don't take that and just set it in a nice crystal bowl on the center of your serving table, you know, for dinner. It's a side if anyone chooses to go for some of that. No, disgusting. Well, God has demonstrated his power to judge and to enact his judgments by decreeing that in some instances in history, nations are raised up to show his justice by destroying them according to his power. Moab is my wash basin. Over Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. In other words, in God's providence, enemies of God's people did arise in the course of history. And these were three, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. But how did God treat them? He treated them like a clogged drain. He treated them like a wastebasket. And basically what he did is he allowed these vessels of dishonor, which Romans 9 goes on to declare, to be raised up to demonstrate his authority to banish and to condemn and to judge and to remove and to cleanse unrighteousness from before him. So we think of our nation today. What are we being raised up as a vessel for, honor or dishonor? I'm here to tell you. The only way America will prove in the end to be a vessel of honor is, is if she repents. To the degree that we've embraced uh, God-rebellious re uh, ideas and uh, notions and cultural norms idea that are rebellious against His law, we deserve to be a wash basin. We deserve to be a wastebasket. We are nothing in our unrepentant sin but a clogged drain that God will wash out and remove so as to preserve His holiness. However, uh, the Lord has offered us, so long as there is today, through the proclamation of His Word, opportunity to repent. This is true on the individual level and as a nation. When the law of God is shown forth, the scepter of Judah goes and decrees that we have fallen short of God's law. There is opportunity in that gospel presentation to turn from our wicked sin. But we must first realize that we are no better than a clogged drain. And it is only through Jesus Christ and His righteousness that we can be cleansed free from the contamination of our sin. And it is only in Jesus Christ and the elevation of His glory, His kingdom, His rule, His law in our land that we can be cleansed, uh, cleansed from our wash basin status and our waste bin status as a nation. Otherwise, God will shout and triumph over us in perdition. So these are means of God's glory saturation. Don't fret if there is evil evident in the course of history. God is raising up these nations for one of two things. To demonstrate His glory by causing them to repent as in the days of Nineveh and turn to the Lord, or to demonstrate His judgments in destroying them for their high cosmic treason against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last point this morning. The messianic perspective is strengthened by heeding not only the vows of the steadfast heart, not only the means of his glory saturation, but finally, meantime reassurance. David says the following in verse 10, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? So we have Edom, this wicked place out there, which uh, represents a threat to God's people at the time. And more than this, there are areas of David's, in David's experience that were not easy, at least in a natural, to see conquering. They were fortified. Uh, kids, I have a question for you. Can you think of a time where uh, God allowed God, uh, the Israelites to have victory over a super strong city? Can you guys think of a time? What's the name of a super strong city 
that God gave the Israelites victory over? Does anyone know? Not Egypt. Think again. There was a city in Canaan, a fortified city, beyond all compare. Its walls were... Jericho. Jericho. I heard a couple Jerichos. Very good. So here's the question. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? The answer is the God who defeated Jericho. How did he do it? He did it by a warrior band with unconventional weapons. All they had was worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. They followed God's word through the leader, their leader, their savior at the time, Joshua, who was a picture of another Joshua, Jesus, to come. They worshiped the Lord. And what did they do? They circled around that city. They took the aerial view in their obedience and they asserted the universal authority of the kingdom of God by blowing that trumpet blast. And this was a bold initiative. Now think if you were an inhabitant of Jericho up on the walls and you look down upon this ragtag band, you know, not two swords among them. Well, maybe they had swords, but I imagine all they had is their trumpets and their robes and their, you know, well-worn sandals. And here they are once a day circling your city and you're just laughing, throwing an occasional tomato and you absolutely uh, scorn and have no regard. You've never seen an, uh, an invading army easier to conquer than these people. What happens on day seven? The seventh trip around the city. Judah, remember what happened? Seventh trip around the city on the seventh day? What? The wall came crashing down. Now, if you lived, if you survived the collapse of your walled city, how might your attitude change as an enemy of God's people? From one of pride and disregard to sheer terror. Now, on the other side of the wall, how would your attitude change? Probably there are those who struggled with terror as they walked around that city, would you? But how would your attitude change when you saw those walls crumble? From sheer terror to absolute confidence. And where can we gain this perspective? In the Word of God. This is a sovereign act of God's conquering in history that gave faith for David when he asked this question, Who will lead me to the fortified city? The victor over Jericho. The one who turned the entire... And you've never seen walls as tall or so thick or deep. You know, probably, probably better than the, than the wall that Trump is, is wanting to build on our southern border. This was an incredible wall. No one could get through. You know, the kind that politicians dream about these days. But who is able, and by a word of his power, to turn walls into gates, if not our sovereign God? This is the meantime reassurance that he gives us. In spite of the fortified cities around us, in spite of the enemies that we face that seem so formidable, imagine how God has, or set yourself in the shoes of those who were able to witness the victory of the Messiah, turning walls into gates in a moment by the word of his power when they were armed with nothing but worship and obedience. And go forth, saints. Go forth uh, with fresh, bold initiative to assert the universal authority of the kingdom of God with your worship and your obedience. Now, David recognizes that mere forces are insufficient. He says, speaking of times past, in the context of the history in which he wrote, Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you not go out, O God, with, or you do not go out, O God, with their armies? O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. David knows that the king who preceded him, Saul, he trusted in the salvation of man. He trusted in chariots and horses. He trusted in his own power and influence, and it failed him. It was vanity. In other words, the mere means that man has, chariots and horses, are not to be celebrated. They are insufficient for the cause. 
And though David, and, and there were times when David committed great sin in this regard, he took a census of the people to see how much power he had, presumably to base his confidence on the future of his nation, on how many warriors ready to brandish the sword that he had in his arsenal. Why did God judge that act of census taking so severely? Was it not because David was tempted to place his faith in swords and swordsmen, horses and chariots, rather than in the God who wins battles for us and just calls us to worship and obedience? Do not commit this sin, even today. Now I'll admit to you, in the heart of a patriot, there seems to be few things more viscerally reassuring than a flyover of fighter jets. And there seems to be few things more comforting than a drone shot of a fleet of aircraft carriers heading for the South Sea of China to protect us from the predations of a potential, uh, of a potential invade, you know, whatever, enemy abroad. But if we are not careful, we will elevate and place security in chariots and horses rather than the Lord. I don't care how many nuclear-powered aircraft carriers you have. You are vulnerable to the Lord of glory if you do not honor him. I don't care if you have a superior air force to every other nation in the world. You will destroy yourself from the inside out for fear of a microscopic virus that is threatening a small percentage of the people with, and you will, on a false understanding of what we ought to do in the face of injustice, burn your own cities down. And what can a fighter jet and an aircraft carrier do to restore order to our inner cities or to stop the threat of this global pandemic? Nothing. What is God teaching us? Vain is the salvation of man. I think we're so afraid of this plague because we know deep inside we deserve it. God has judged rebellious people through the course of history by plague. It's weird. We don't even really have anything of plague pro uh, proportionally speaking, but we act as if we do. Could it not be the consciousness of a wicked people crying out and almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, knowing full well if they're honest on the inside, as far as their conscience is concerned, that they deserve the judgment of God? So they're almost wishing a plague upon themselves in a false attempt at atonement. I think there's something deep and profound in the psyche and the fears that are in our nation today. And what does this demonstrate? Vain is the salvation of man. Where is freedom to be found from the threat of God's justice and plague? Where is the assurance of the future of a nation to be found? It's to be found in the Lord, the Messiah, who goes forth valiantly. Worship and obedience to Jesus Christ will bring down the walls of Jericho. But without that, there is no hope. There is a conditional triumph that David recognizes at the close of this chapter. He says, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. You remember the people, David slew Goliath, and then there's a parade through the streets and everyone's crying out, oh, Saul has slain his thousand, David has slain his ten thousands. In that moment, David was no stranger to the opportunity to receive the praise and accolades of men. Yet David was a unique magistrate. He actually offered praises and prayers and honor to the Lord. And I'm convinced he wrote many of these songs to hold his own soul accountable, not to take the glory and to remember that it was the Messiah. It was Jesus Christ and his power in history that earned for him the victory. When he sought to take a census to assure the security of his borders, he was judged. When he went forth in worshipful obedience and put the temptations, Bathsheba and Lyca aside, to be faithful to the Lord's calling, he was victorious. David knew and realize in his experience, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes.
1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, say as much. We move from the example of David as a forerunner of Christ, as a type of Christ. We move from that example to the fulfillment. Remember last week's message, we, talk about, we talked about Moses giving way and fulfillment and sufficiency to Jesus. In the same way, the scriptures give way and fulfillment and sufficiency from David the king to the son of David, Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says of his rule and reign in 1 Corinthians 20, 15, 23, or 24. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. When is Christ reigning? Right now. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated, to be destroyed, is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Amen. There is conditional triumph that is celebrated in Psalm 108. That is because only in the Messiah is there ultimate, lasting, reassuring source of hope and victory for the future. The Messianic perspective, Jesus' victory in history, strengthens those who serve him yet today. And, do, and we can do so by vowing to hold our souls accountable to that which the steadfast heart confesses. To the means that God we can visit in the course of history, the means that God uses to subdue nations, to convict nations, and to establish his rule and reign, and to bring his enemies under his footstool. And in the meantime, we can draw reassurance from many things in His Scripture and even at the Lord's table today. With God, we shall do valiantly. Communion is a table spread before us today in the presence of our enemies. In the presence of sin, in the presence of what sin deserved, the judgment of death and hell, the Lord, in the giving of His own body, in the spilling of His own blood, set a table before us those who trust and look to the Messiah for help and hope and victory set a table before us in the presence of those enemies. And how did he defeat them? He defeated them by his work on Calvary. Thus, when we come to the Lord's table, we come to a covenant meal echoing all the way back to Genesis as we have studied where Abraham himself had communion with the Lord who had revealed himself in person to him at the time. In a similar way today, communion represents a reconciliation a welcome to the table fellowship of the Lord of glory. You don't allow just anybody into your home, do you? If there's a psychopathic serial killer who is at the door, picture in your mind like a zombie beating on the outside of your window, you don't open your window and say, come on in. No, your table fellowship is reserved for those who you have a trust bond with, who you are in relationship with, and you have an expectation that you share similar values. And so it is at the table of our Lord. We come to the table washed clean of our zombie-infected, death-ridden, sinful natures by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we come to the table recognizing that in this meal is pictured the victory of the Messiah over the last enemy. The provision of Jesus Christ in his body and blood came by way of suffering and sacrifice, yet it supplies for us eternal life and fellowship, which this meal anticipates. And this meal is a foreshadow before us today, as we often say, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate communion 
where in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, we will celebrate the victory of Messiah ultimately manifest in all of history as all of the redeemed join without spot or blemish, clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ in full and consummate communion, love and fellowship at his table and every shade and shadow and every decrepit element and effect of sin is absolutely destroyed and removed from the presence of the almighty God till all that remains in the new heaven and new earth are the blood-bought who have proven victorious by the manifestation of their faith in worship and obedience to the Savior that laid his life down to purchase their entrance into eternal life by died for their sins. That was a long sentence. This morning, I pray that as we approach the table, that you would do so in a heart of victory purchased for you by Jesus Christ. The communion table will be open to those who are believers in this room and only for believers. Those who were baptized last week, the communion table is open to you. And as you come to the table, search your heart. Do not approach the table with unrepented, unconfessed sin and so forth in your souls. But approach the table, nevertheless, recognizing Jesus has died for you and your sins with boldness. Recognizing that in Him you have reconciliation with the Father. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that these, for these moments that you have given us to share in this meal together. We thank you that this meal is not just communion shared between believers but it is communion with the holy and righteous and otherwise unapproachable God. Who can approach you who dwell in unapproachable light, as the word declares? Only those whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Only those who are baptized in him. Only those who have, by union with the work of Christ, had their sins atoned for and been given the robes of righteousness and access and citizenship into the kingdom and the glorious welcome. I'm a holy God welcoming those whose sins are washed away by the atoning sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would etch these truths meaningfully, deeply upon our souls at your communion table this day. And may it be means for us to apply your scripture boldly in this day to go from this place announcing your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.